Good morning. It's looking like winter wonderland finally, huh? Just in time for Christmas and then for it to go away in a week, right? We're finally going to get that Mainer fantasy. Everyone's like, I love the snow. It's a nice little blanket over the lawn and everything. It's like, yeah, say that in February. Well, this is, I can't echo Gus's prayer anymore. I, I just really, you know, kind of affirm what he just talked to the Lord about because I would put sort of our Advent season, the last several Sundays that we've had together, the Advent season coming towards, you know, the celebration of Christmas as I would say that we've been attempting to put Christmas in context, you know, remaining with John for, for quite a while and watching uh, Jesus marching towards the cross and still remembering uh, why he was born, why he came, but fixating and focusing on all that he accomplished rather than just one moment in time. And so uh, even, even a song like we just sang about the resurrection and just knowing that that's where it goes. You know, we so often hear the phrase this time of year, you just got to remember what Christmas is really about. And that's that's definitely true. We need these little markers in our lives, these uh, touch points, if you will, to bring us back to the center of things. And so having people say that a lot during the Christmas season is helpful. Sometimes I feel like, ah, it's just cliche. Everybody says, don't forget what Christmas is really about. But it does help us. But as a Christian who's engaging in worship and the celebration of the full life of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to be uh, on the right hand of the Father, we, we understand when we see the image of a baby in a manger, we hear the story of the wise men coming and the shepherds being told and all of that for us is this just giant, giant story that has transformed and changed our lives. And in context, the last several weeks, we've been talking about, well, actually for now, for months, most of the year, we keep, as we're going through the Gospel of John, we keep finding examples of how not to receive Jesus. We, we expose the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and all that they failed to see with the arrival of Jesus. And how we go through the Christmas story and we see all the, the warnings and the, the prophecies and it must have, it should have been so clear to them, but something blocked their reception of the Messiah and it was their pride, it was their arrogance, it was the kingdom of now that they lived for that would block their understanding that this could be the Messiah, this could be the one that was received. Well, we've looked at so many bad examples. I thought we would take the reading that the ladies just shared with us earlier for the Advent candle and look at a good example, somebody who was ready to receive Jesus. And that was a man named Simeon. And we just heard in that context, we only heard a little bit about him. And that's all we get of Simeon and his background. It's all we understand is what was read for us in these verses. So we're going to take a little bit, just a little bit deeper dive at who Simeon was and then put him up in front of us as a mirror in terms of the willingness of being able to receive Jesus. But before we get there, I want to um, just highlight some doctrinal principles that set the stage for what Simeon and Jesus' earthly parents with Mary and Joseph are set to do under Simeon's care even. And so that we can understand sort of the bigger picture, again, biblically speaking, because it's important for us to understand that Jesus came to fulfill the law that God had distributed to his people. 
He had come to, to be born, as the scripture says, born under the law. In other words, he was born into the system that God, his father, had provided for mankind. He wasn't the rebel against all things good, or he wasn't a rebel against all things structure, as we sometimes put back on Jesus, or those that think that Jesus was just some sort of cultural warrior who showed us how to do things good and, and kind of chill and sacrificial and serving one another and that sort of thing, we superimpose on Jesus sort of this this rebellious kind of outside of culture sort of um, uh, of image. And we forget that Jesus came to be obedient to very specific rules, regulations, and a code that his father had placed on his people. And we see it right out of the gate in our text. If we go to verse 21 of Luke chapter 2 together, Again, this is what was read for us at the lighting of the candle. Verse 21 says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Just in this tiny little sentence, we see a ton of obedience and a ton of of, of, um, uh, adhering to a very strict and very clear system that the father had put forward. Mary and Joseph are, are, are good Jews. They are participating religiously in the things that God had instructed the people of Israel to do. On the eighth day after a, a, a boy was born, he was to be circumcised. And it wasn't just because that name was picked randomly out of the, out of the air and everything. There's actually great even medical reason why it would be there. But of course, God the designer knew that. And so on the eighth day, they, they know it's to bring him for that, for that presentation. That his name was one that was given to them by God. Jehovah is salvation, is the name Jesus. So they're like, well, we already know what his name is. We know what we're doing on his eighth day. It's all very clear to us. There wasn't an intention, even though Mary knew my child is unique. This is outside the norm. I am, uh, when she got, when she got the message that he was coming, she wasn't a married individual. There was just all these kinds of things that were so unique and outside of what they would consider to be good practice and even lawful. But it wasn't so that they would remain in that state or that they would continue to buck against what God the Father had put in place. Jesus, of course, gave us an indication that this was going to be the situation. Back in John chapter 5, we're going kind of way back earlier in the year, when he was scolding the Pharisees for not seeing that he was going to come the way he came, for not recognizing that he was the Messiah. He says, the one you call father, Moses, wrote of me, and you missed it. Galatians 4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, this is a great Christmas passage. In other words, when it was ready, when it was the world was pregnant with need, is when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, placing himself under the law to find us, the, the lawbreakers, to do what we couldn't do. In Matthew 5, this is exactly what Jesus is explaining. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. There would be the expectation because he wasn't doing the man-made law stuff. He wasn't doing all the rituals and traditions that they had established that they put on par often over the law of God. He says, don't think I've come to just be a rebel, that I'm not here to smash the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is what Jesus came to do, to submit to it, to surrender to it, to show that it can be done perfectly, but not by you and me. And to believe that we could do it perfectly is just a falsehood. And that is the intent of the law given to mankind is to show that we can't reach it. We can't attain it. We can't do well by it. So his parents are doing everything according to the law. They're start, they're setting the tone right from the, at, right out of the gate. They've named him. They've circumcised, they've circumcised him. The, all of these things are pictures of the relationship that God intended to have with his people, with his called out people. And would they receive him? And we know, of course, the answer is by and large, no. So this is the setting that Jesus is born into. And I know this is a strange subject for a Christmas message. Like Max Lucado's not going to take my notes and go, I think I can write a really good Christmas story based on this message. As much as I want sometime for us to have that feel of we're going to huddle together and eat and sip some hot cocoa and have a, this isn't the one. This isn't the kind of message that does that. I mean, we're talking about born under the law, circumcision, all these weird things and stuff. Yet it's important for our perspective of all that Christmas accomplishes. This doctrine is helpful for us to understand that Jesus came not to be, as we know, just adorable or just kind or any of the things that we reduce him down to. He came to accomplish a task, a task on our behalf. Everything he did was what you and I couldn't accomplish. This is... uh Spelled out for us again, we come out to uh, back to our text in Luke two, verse 22. We're going to see again the, the, the participation in the law continues when the time for their purification, according to the law of Moses. And when the time came, I'm sorry for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is common. So after on the eighth day, then another counter starts. And if you've given birth to a boy, then you, you're 33 days removed from your purification, your eligibility to reenter the temple. And so 40 days in, and, and none of these numbers are by accident, God's whole system and everything makes all, all kinds of sense. And there's people much smarter than me that have looked into the meaning of all these numbers and things, but just know that they are doing everything by the book. So they know when their purification is available. They know when to come and present their son before the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb or the firstborn shall be called holy or unique, set set apart or dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according again to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, interestingly, Jesus' parents have come 40 days later after his birth, and they've come to participate in the common ritual. So because it's a boy, they're offering him up to the Lord. He is unique. He's the firstborn. He's special to the Lord. And because of that, they are, they are figuratively and then within their heart offering him to the Lord, presenting him. And then they pay five shekels to get him back. And again, it's not like there's any expectation that once they give them to the temple, they're like, ah, I don't know, the price just went up. We're not interested. We're going to keep them. They, they knew we're going to offer him and then they pay five shekels. They are redeeming their own child. 
Interestingly, in Mary and Joseph's case, they are redeeming the one who would redeem all of mankind to follow. And, and they're doing it with only five shekels. It's, you see the context that he was born in. Even the offering that they give, the two turtle doves, you know, the cue your um, 12 days of Christmas song and all this kind of stuff. You've got this poor person's offering. The expectation was this is worthy of an offering of a lamb, a spotless lamb. And so those that could afford it were commanded to. But those that couldn't afford it, grace was shown to them. And uh, an appeasement, if you will, was shown to them so that they could come with even less. If you don't have a lamb at your disposal, you can't afford to do it. God says, I'm not excluding anybody to come and offer the sacrifice, even turtle doves or pigeons. As my friend in college would call the pigeons, the city chicken. Just really common. You can get your hands on them. It's, you know, if you can catch it. But it's available to them. They can participate. It wasn't exclusionary to those that were wealthy enough to afford this kind of sacrifice. God wanted participation of the well-meaning, of the humble in heart. And again, this is the strange context that Jesus is born into. All of that expectation. Can you not kind of understand why the Pharisees were expecting an elite savior, a Messiah to come with, with pedigree and all these other kinds of things. And instead they get a guy who's born in a barn, whose parents didn't even have a lamb. And they're like a couple of birds here. Will that do? And that kind of, all of that is, is the context that Jesus was born into raised up in Jesus would be the lamb that his parents couldn't provide. Second Corinthians eight tells us again more about this effort and what this incarnation looked like. He says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I'm just thinking about this. I'm reading this on the page and just thinking, how much do I allow setback in my life from a standard that I'm used to? How much do I welcome change if it takes me from a place that's provided me some comfort or stability or security? And then all of a sudden I've got to accept lesser. Does my, does my spirit, does my flesh really, you know, uh, adjust to that well? Or is there a fair amount of complaining? Maybe not even the stuff you might hear, but what goes on in, in, on the inside of me. And here is Jesus has left, um, unimaginable wealth, unfathomable wealth in heaven. All the glory and the praise and he is the, the light of the whole atmosphere and, and all focuses on him and he leaves that to go through all of this. Barn, circumcision, turtle doves, all of these kind of humble, poorest of the poor kind of actions. And if you just remove my standard of living from me for a moment, I'm going like, I shouldn't have to endure this kind of suffering. And it just helps me understand all that he left and all that he accomplished. This is why Jesus' relationship to the law is of critical importance. What the law required of him was something he never deserved or had to go through, but he did it because he knew we couldn't. He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. We, we see this in, in John 8 where, where Jesus is challenging the Pharisees. He goes, how many of you can convict me of sin? And they're all just mum. You're like, oh, let's think about this. I think he did. No, no, that was, we couldn't prove that. He, he was flawless in all of his actions. They couldn't hang anything on him. 
He had to do that perfectly for you and for me. He bore the curse that came from the law. If you're guilty, then you pay the penalty. And he says, they can't afford that penalty. They'll never come back from it. So instead, like Galatians 3 tells us, that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it goes on to say that because cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree, which is exactly where we know he ended up. And he set us free from the bondage of the law. As good as the law is, the law reflects the holy and perfect character of God. The law is beautiful. The law is, 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 is full of revelation for who God is. But to you and me, it's a burden because it's so unattainable. Even something that's beautiful can be unattainable. Those of you that are married, you know you had no reason to got the wife you got. Sorry, that was intended to be a joke. Bad Christmas humor. Wives are supposed to be like, that's right. <laughs> Beauty's unattainable. It's only by grace that we attain any of it, right? But he set us free from the bondage of that law because it was so far removed from our ability to reach it or to grasp it. Galatians 5 continues to tell him for freedom, Christ has set us free. So let's continue in Luke chapter 2. Jump back into verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Now, we don't have much to go on on Simeon, but if your name was only recorded for a, a minute in the scripture, wouldn't you want this to be your description? He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, uh, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. We get an introduction to this person, Simeon, this guy who just shows up, like I said, for a minute. We don't know that much about him, but there's enough in this description to see why he would have received Jesus the way that he did. There's enough in the description to see why he would have been mentioned as a stop in the story. And isn't this just like God? He uses people that others would overlook or the seemingly insignificant. And the Christmas story itself is loaded with these kind of stops. We think about the message coming to the shepherds, the people that were the the lowest in society, the stinkiest among us. The people that nobody wanted to listen to spend time with. These guys were loners. They're out there just watching animals. And yet that's the, those are the groups that the angel comes to and says, I've got a message that's going to transform the world. Thought I would share it with you first. It's incredible what God does. His, 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 his marketing for his global changing message astounds me because nobody worth their, worth their salt in advertising would have launched the, the program the way that God did. And even after his birth, he continues to use these seemingly insignificant people. But we see from this description that there was more to Simeon than history would uh, understand or even recognize. He had the presence of the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit was upon him. Now, again, if this was the description of the Pharisees, we would have expected a different reaction when Jesus finally came into their midst. 
if they were walking like spirit-led beings, if they were following the God they claimed to serve, they would have looked a little bit more like Simeon in finally meeting him. All Jesus is able to say is goo goo gaga to Simeon right now, and he's seen enough. It's all he needed to see was the, the redemption, the salvation of Israel. And the only thing that prepares us to see that and to respond and to receive him like that is the presence of the Spirit of God. What we see instead from the religious leaders and all those who opposed him and hung him on a cross was greed and anger and deceit to try to maintain their position. But instead, Simeon looks more like the fruit of the spirit that we see in Galatians 5, which is love and joy, peace, patience. We know from his story, the little bit we know is he's extremely patient. It's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. Simeon had the presence of the Spirit, which gave him the eyes to recognize the Messiah had finally come. And it's clear to us that he was taught by the Word of God because he says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon would only get this idea from knowing the Hebrew Scriptures. He would know it throughout Isaiah and other prophecies and things, Isaiah 49, 13 in particular. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Because Simeon had spent so much time in the prophecies and he saw that the consolation, the comfort, the joy of Israel was coming. That was enough for him to wait for. Because we've said this a bunch of times throughout the years. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Simeon would be a walking example of this, that God had said it was coming. That's all I needed to hear is that it would come. Now, he got specific revelation that it would come in his lifetime, so he had even more reason to hang on. But Simeon demonstrated this trust in the word of God that he said it would accomplish. No matter what his eyes were taking in, no doubt that Simeon, if he's an older man, we don't really know this from the text, but we have some indications that perhaps he is then he would have been a child when his city got sacked and General Pompey from, from Rome had come in and established the occupation and he would have seen the heartache and the destruction and the death. He would have probably had that fear from a child's eyes and that anger from a, from, from a citizen standpoint of like, how can you take this from us? Even in his lifetime, he had to wait for some kind of reprieve in that, some kind of answer that was promised. And this is what Simeon is is he's he's taught by the word of god he says it's coming i can hang on for this the application to us is probably quite obvious especially we're here in church and you expect a pastor to say if god said it in his word you can bank on it but the reality is this if you and i do not know the word of god if we don't know what he's promised us what he's provided for us what he's expected of us then what are we hanging on for? How do we expect that to inform our patience? How do we expect it to mature our ability to trust him in all circumstances? There's nothing really concrete for us to hang on to apart from the word of God. And the more we dig in, the more we search it, we know it's not full of empty platitudes that just help us to get through and have a better day. But instead, there's actual literal promise for us to hang on to. Now, Simeon was given very specific revelation that is not promised to you and I. For 2,000 years, people have been waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. 
And so we can give ourselves a little bit of a pass that we don't have exactly the same faith as Simeon because nobody came to you and said, at least accurately, by the end of 2021, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. So just hang on because most of us would be like, okay, I can do that. I can watch the calendar for a while. I can, I can grip and I can hang on for a bit, but we've been given no determined time period. In fact, Jesus even tells us that only the father knows the time that he would come back. And Jesus then says, blessed are those who see, who believe, even though they haven't seen. There's a lot of evidence you and I wish for that hasn't been provided for us. But there's a lot of truth that continues to be proven right day after day, month after month, year after year, that keep us holding on to the promise and the prophecy of God. In other words, if I believe that he's true today because he said he will accomplish this piece, Why would I doubt that he can't accomplish the whole thing if I keep walking in that principle? If I keep daily trusting the portion that he's revealed to me and acting it out and living on it, banking on it. You see, this is why Simeon's a great example to us. Yes, he had a bit of an advantage because he was told kind of when. Every time he felt a cough, (laughs) I think this is it. Messiah must be coming because I was told he's not going to. He's not going to, you know, be absent in my lifetime. I'm going to see him in my lifetime. But it made him a watcher. It made him somebody who was obedient to the will of God. He heard he was taught by the word of God and it made him obedient to it. Of course, we know there's always a danger in that, right? Just knowing the word of God doesn't naturally make us obedient to it. Just being in the audience of the truth doesn't make us partakers of the truth. But fortunately for us, as an example, Simeon was both a learner of the word, but obedient to it as well. He waited and watched. He went through the perhaps the destruction younger. He had something to wait for, some kind of restoration to see take place. You and I have been given a very similar responsibility, though nobody told us the day or the time or any of those sorts of things. We've been given the same responsibility to wait and to watch. Still in Luke, but jumping way towards the end of the book in chapter 21. This is what's been said to us. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and the foreboding of what is coming in the world. And finally, we're saying, okay, this sounds like something I can wrap my head around. We hear that description. We're like, sounds like culture today. Sounds like what's going on all around me. Sounds like something I'm tempted to slip in and out of from time to time. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what's coming on in the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see, we've been given the same command that, that Simeon was given. Look for it. It's coming. It's happening. We say, yeah, maybe not in my lifetime. I believe every generation has thought can't get any worse than this. And yet we continue. But we've been given the same responsibility to wait and to watch. And I, and I would change wait instead of us thinking about just sitting around going, well, you know, it's coming someday. Think of waiting like when we wait on tables. That we're busy in the service of the Lord. It causes us to use the time wisely. It causes us to do these things. Why? Because he's coming back. 
I don't want to waste any time. There are signs that are, that are shared with me that I can at least say, okay, it's getting hotter. It's ramping up. I need to pay attention to these things. And if we're, if we're celebrating Christmas in context, we don't forget the fact that this comes to an end at some point. If you're anything like me, you need that reminder. It's like, how do you want him to find you? How do you, how do you, what do you want him to see you doing when he returns? And that might be a little superficial. It might be a drive-by guilting, but sorry, that's who I am. I'm a little bit shallow that way. I need that perk, that reminder. I was the kid who needed to know when the parents were coming home so I could clean up the mess. You see, this is Simeon's existence. He was looking for the signs. He was looking for the times. He was expecting the consolation of Israel, the reprieve. And because he was spirit-led, because he was a man of the word and devoted to the will of God, he wasn't waiting in fear. He wasn't sitting there going, oh, I hope I don't bump into the Messiah in temple today. I got a lot to clear up. I got a lot of things in my life. No, he was anticipating. He was waiting like a servant at tables. He was watching eagerly so that he could say, now that I've seen him, he, I can depart in peace. And, and that word depart in the original language has more to do with like a, like a ship who's just being tied down and the, and the waters are wanting to take the ship away and the ropes going, nope, not letting you go. And he said, it's almost like now that I've seen the Messiah, somebody came and just cut the rope and I can launch out into the sea and do what I was intended to do. That I can depart in peace because he saw the salvation of God. He wouldn't depart before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What Simeon saw, and this is a message for all of us today. What Simeon saw was salvation but he saw it in the person of Jesus. There's not a lot here that, that says that Simeon sat his parents down and said, now listen, I'm wrestling with some of the interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures or the Hebrew Bible, all they knew at the time. I'm wrestling with how some of this goes and everything. So I want to work out some of these plot lines, see if you can help me fill in the gaps, you know, and that kind of thing. I, I really hope that the Lord keeps me around to see the fulfillment of all these things. He said, I've seen the person and that's enough. Salvation has come in the name of Jesus. In fact, the word that we would say he was using is because this is a, a Greek translation, you know, in the New Testament, we would think of the word for salvation being the act. So Tyrion is the rescuing of. So when we say I've been saved, that's the event. But he would have been speaking the Hebrew of salvation, which was Yeshua, who many of you would know is the name of Jesus. He says, now I've seen him. I've seen God's salvation in his firstborn, in his one and only son. Salvation is in a person of Jesus. This is why at faith you see us week after week as we open the scriptures. We're trying to present to God's people and to those that would be interested to hear who God is. We're trying to present to you the person of Jesus. 
not 10 quick steps to have a better life, not methods on how having a better day or better life based on good religious practices or shared wisdom throughout the other religions or any of those kinds of things. Our firm belief and conviction is if we present Jesus as he is accurately presented in the scriptures, you have an opportunity and a responsibility to do business with a relationship with a person. As you see his glory, as you see his magnificence, as you see his sacrifice, as you see his, his love for you, then you have the opportunity to say, Lord, you are my personal savior. And this is what Simeon is acknowledging. I have seen my personal savior and not me only. Keep in mind, this is before all the dust up of what the Pharisees were we're accusing him of all of the confusion about whether or not he was, he was being a religious Jew or whether he was being a rebel and what's the deal with the Gentiles, the, the unbelievers showing up and all these kinds of things. This is while Jesus is 40 days old. Simeon says that he was going to be a light to all the peoples. He was going to be a light to the Gentiles as well. This wasn't an exclusive offer to a certain group. It came from an exclusive group. It's very clear to us that God had intended to do his miraculous performances and show his incredible love through a specific exclusive group of people. But he said, there will be a day when they will reject him, that they won't contain him just for themselves, that this message of hope and forgiveness of their sins is going to spread all throughout the world. And everyone who bows their knee, who humbles themselves before him. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as we heard from our reading, this idea of expectation and reception gets awfully close to home for Mary. Simeon sets his sights on her and he blessed Mary and Joseph. And he said to Mary, his mother in verse 34, behold, this child is appointed it's a very important word here. He is set. He's determined. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, as a parent, let's just put, because sometimes we swing the pendulum too far. We will, well, I don't want to celebrate Mary so much and, and kind of deify her, make her a part of the plan of salvation and all that kind of stuff, which I understand theologically we can't and we shouldn't. But we forget that this was a very special woman who no doubt had incredible affection for her own child. And she's hearing this message early on, even though she knows something really different's going on. I know the truth. I know that Joseph's not the father. I know that this is something really miraculous happening here, but being able to comprehend it all and really to absorb it all is going to take a long time. And probably not even while she's alive, would she be able to really fathom what has happened? And now Simeon, this godly, humble, available mouthpiece of God comes along and says, now listen, your son is going to be so important. He's going to be life changing as a parent. How do you not want to hear that? Sounds pretty cool. I'm going to start doing that. If we have a baby dedication, we're like, this child is going to be the greatest soccer player known to man. Just, just to make parents feel good. They'll be like, this is amazing. We're going to cash in now. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that Simeon was humble and led by the spirit and everything, they might look at him and go, this is a weird thing. Why put our baby down? Let's take him back now. Creepy old dudes talking about it like he knows him. 
But he knows what's going on and they trust him. This is in the context of the temple. There's something clearly unique about Simeon. And he says, listen, mom, you need to hear a few things. Yes, he's going to be significant. Yes, he's going to be important. He's going to be responsible for an irretrievable crash amongst the traditional segment of God's people. He's going to be responsible for the destruction of the haughty and the arrogant. Those that think that they're better than anybody else. Those that think they know the best plan of salvation. Those that think that no humble Messiah coming from Nazareth and needing to have poor people's sacrifices and all that stuff. There's no way he could be the son of God. He's going to turn them upside down, cause them to trip over him like a stone. And this is what we've seen playing out all through the gospel of John. We've seen nothing but trip after trip after trip after fall. But he said he's also going to be responsible for the rise, the resurrection of the humble and the meek. Again, as a parent, you're like, I like where this is going. My boy, he's going to, he's going to level arrogant people and he's going to notice the humble. He's going to elevate them and bring them up. What mom wouldn't be proud of that, but he said, but mom, you have to see that this is a sign. He's also a sign that is opposed. He's going to be rejected by his own people. He's going to be tormented and suffered and, and he's going to have a long, uh, line of all of this before they ultimately end him. So they think Mary has to continually face the end. In every ounce of love and, and hope and dreams and desires she has for her own son, she has to keep thinking, but I know this is, perm- uh, this is temporary. I know this comes to an end at a particular time. It's almost like the same message came, comes to Simeon and says, you won't see death until you see the Messiah. The same kind of realization and foreboding comes to Mary. It says, you're not going to see him grow to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the same kind of kid you'd wish any other time. He's, he's here for a unique purpose. You're going to have to witness some pretty uncomfortable and ugly things. He even gets personal to Mary and says a sword will pierce through your own, uh, your own soul. And his, his imagery here is this isn't just like, ow, oh, this hurts. He says it's going to be this giant saber that is going to continually cut in on your heart over and over again. But what he's going to do is he's going to divide. There will be no middle ground on Jesus. The thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Remember the purpose, Mary. Remember that you're giving, you've given birth to the savior of the world and this comes at a price, but it accomplishes more than anybody else will ever be able to accomplish that there is no middle ground when it comes to receiving Jesus. You're either with him or you're against him. You don't have a, a half like of Jesus. And he's like, yeah, it's enough for me or anything. No, he's a, he's a sword that cuts down the middle. He even said it himself. I didn't come to, to unify, I came to divide. Even though in salvation, he unifies that the truth cuts down the middle. Mary had to fine tune her expectations, I'm sure, on a daily basis. How does a mother's wishing heart not get away from her? And it constantly have to be reeled back in. But this isn't going to be him. You see, like Simeon, like Mary, we are all um, challenged to receive Jesus. And to welcome his coming with all that it means, not just the things we hope it means, not just the things that we've designed for ourselves that we think that Jesus has come to fulfill in our lives, but to surrender all those things and say to receive him as he is based on what the prophecy is and based on who he is as a person, I receive him as he is. 
not him who I've made him to be. The, uh, the great um, hymn by Charles Wesley that is often a, a Christmas classic, I think gives us a, a, a poem, if you will, of expectation. Come thou long expected, Jesus. But it gives us a position of where our hearts should be continually. And I would say, well, this is our opportunity this Christmas season. You'd expect me to say all that kind of stuff. But really, what are we going to do in January? What are we going to do in February, August, next December? If we're not developing an expectation of, of receiving of Jesus all that he is, all who he is, regardless of how that plays out in our life, we're not going to be ready to see him. We're not going to recognize him like Simeon did in the temple and just take one look and say, he's arrived We're going to reject. We're going to say, no, no, that's not the way I expected him to come. That's not the way I wanted him to look. I didn't want him to do that in my life. I wanted him to do this in my life. But instead, like the hymn says, we would say, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth that thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule, rule, let's underline that word in our minds, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, Raise us to thy glorious throne. Lord Jesus, you have brought us together in a season that we all really do appreciate and and look forward to in so many other ways. And then in other ways, some of us grieve in this time or we experience heightened degrees of loneliness because of all that should be happening in the ideal, yet the losses that we've had in our lives exposed to us that that ideal isn't present for us. And so it brings its own heartache. It brings all kinds of things, Lord. And so it's difficult for us to make sense of what this season should mean in our lives. Is it celebration? Is it mournful? What is it? But Lord, receiving you, who you are in the stage of our life, in the moments of our affliction and our praise, Lord, is all you've asked us to do. You've called us to be ready. You've called us to be willing to receive you. And Lord, the, even the victories, but certainly the heartaches of this life are temporary. You've given us a promise that these days would end and that you would come back and you'd rescue your people and that you would bring us to a place where we would never have to worry about these kinds of heartaches again. Whether we remember them or not, Lord, we don't know, but we know that we're delivered from them. And so, Lord, the grace that you've given us, the grace that you've promised us on that day is the grace that walks us through all the days in between. So, Lord, I pray this morning for those who are particularly discomforted, those that are particularly hopeless. I pray, Lord, you help them set their their sights on you. I pray that they would see you in the courtyard, welcome you because they've been waiting for you. They've been waiting for your arrival, waiting for your peace, waiting for your consolation. But Lord, for those too that are 
going about life and things are kind of status quo and they're going okay or they're not going terrible or whatever the limbo that we find ourselves in so often, Lord, I pray that you'd wake us up. I pray that you'd give us eyes to, to receive you. That we would be looking for all the signs of your coming. That we would trust the promises that you've made clear to us that you continue to fulfill every single day. Knowing that ultimately we can trust that your biggest promise of coming back for your redeemed, we would bank on. So Lord, help us to not just celebrate this Christmas with a beginning, but also with an end in mind. With all eternity in mind. And may we as your children, Lord, continue to humbly worship at your feet. Knowing, Lord, that you are the great and good designer of a plan that has saved us from ourselves, rescued us from our sins, and given us the peace that this season celebrates. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.